As you're seated, please open the Bible to 1 Peter chapter 1, the Word of God open and ready to speak to us. We are ready to hear what God would have for us to hear, to know, and to do. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13 Let's read through verse 21. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as He who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. Like that of a lamb without blemish or spot, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Father, we praise you and thank you for that truth, that our faith, our hope are in you, that you are a faithful God, and that you, Lord, are ready to save us when we call upon your name. And Lord, you are going to save us at the end when your son returns. God, I pray in the meantime that you would have your way, your will, your purposes among us for your glory in Jesus' name. Well, in the 1950s here in America, after World War II had ended, the new threat on everybody's mind was the Cold War between the U.S. and the USSR. And really the threat that was on everybody's mind, the real worry was that the Cold War would turn into something much hotter, an all-out nuclear war, that nuclear bombs would be dropped on both countries and just all over the world, and then civilization as we know it would be wiped out. Some of you were alive during this time. I was alive uh, <laughs> for the part of, first part of my life during this, this time of this nuclear scare. All of the nuclear bombs would obliterate everything, right, in a single explosion, and they would have lasting effects on those who did survive for, with uh, radiation poisoning from fallout and electronic devices not working because of the EMP, uh, the, the electromagnetic pulse that would render them inoperable. There was a lot of fear. There was a lot of things to worry about in the Cold War, during the Cold War. It could come at any moment, right? The missiles were pointed right at the other country, and, and the nervous governments were always waiting to say, hit the button, right? Or not even have to hit the button. If it saw that some missiles were coming our way, they would have just automatically launched, right? Well, so there was a lot of fear, but then also what happens after the war, after many wars, what happens is a recession in the economy. And so people got worried about nuclear war. They got worried about the economy and about a recession, a depression, or even collapse of the government, of, of the government, of the economy. And the government didn't seem to have a lot of answers. It, it wasn't very reliable. Really, the government was actually even encouraging people to dig fallout shelters, right, and, and try to find a way to protect yourself. Kids had drills as part of their school day 
to hide under desks and things. Well, people took it upon themselves at the time to start taking responsibility to provide for themselves, to ensure survivability for themselves and for their family. Now, that became the beginnings of what we call today the prepper movement. Have you heard about the prepper movement? Now, there were some who were strongly anti-government, right? They were anarchists, they were rebels, anti-authority, but others really just wanted to make sure they survived, (laughs) that they and their children survived. And so, they um, did whatever they could, and people in the prepper movement do whatever they can do to be prepared for uh, whatever might happen, gathering weapons or food or water. But the common theme was and is an expectation of what could come in the future and what we should do about it right now. Their knowledge of what could come prompted a lot of work for now, but for many in that prepper community, it's not a question of if something comes, but when, right? It's not uh, when something bad happens. No empire, no nation has ever stood forever. No place has been completely spared of a catastrophic weather event or, or an earthquake, tornadoes and and volcanoes and things happen on this earth. At least every place on the earth has experienced a worldwide catastrophic flood at one point in history. But for some, the inevitable will materialize at some point, and so they do everything they can do now to prepare for it. And so they stockpile food and water. They, they pack bug-out bags for quick getaways. They, they prepare for a total energy collapse or a blackout or whatever could happen, survival skills, first aid, self-defense, food production, and more. There's a lot that goes into being a prepper. It consumes a lot of resources like time and money and energy. But no matter what it costs, for those in the movement, it's all worth it, right? It costs so much, but the payoff is when whatever might happen, happens. And it really actually becomes an all-encompassing way of life. Some of you might see where we're going with this at this point, right? Peter tells us, brothers and sisters, that we need to be spiritual preppers. We need to be preparing for what will happen. You say, how do you get that? Well, we've studied the first 12 verses of 1 Peter chapter 1 already, and three times Peter has referenced the end. He says the end is coming, right? It's coming. It's going to happen one day. In verse 5, the salvation that's ready to be revealed in the last time. Verse 7, our faith will be found true at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Verse 9, we're becoming, we're looking forward to the outcome of our faith when it's all said and done, the the salvation of our souls. So, three times already in the first 12 verses, Peter said, it's coming. The end is coming. The end is coming. You got to get ready. You better be ready, right? Look here at verse 13. The grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Four times now in 13 verses, Peter says, the end is coming. We need to be ready. See, everything that Peter talks about finds its cause in God's work of saving us, but it's even more specifically directly related to the future end that's coming when we get to be with Him forever. For Peter, it's not a question of whether it will come, but if it will come. And not if it will come, but when, right? Not whether or if, but when. And there is much preparation for us to be engaged in now so that we will be ready. And so preparing becomes an all-encompassing way of life. Just as it does in the prepper community today, we need to be preppers spiritually. But here's the difference. Instead of the suggestions that are available for preppers today, God gives us commands which are not optional. 
we see commands in the Scripture, and many times we just kind of gloss over them, right? We, we kind of read past them. But commands from God are commands, right? Those are things that He wants us to do. If we ever wanted to know what God's will is, we could go into the Bible and, and read the commands that He's given us, and those are the things that He wants us to do, right? He wouldn't command us to do things He doesn't want us to do. So His commands are His will. So we're going to see this morning in verses, just verses 13 through 16, two commands that go hand in hand together, and they're a progression. They actually build on one another. The first command lends the ability to obey the second command. And the second command that we're going to look at is what, it, it, it's what I call a grand command, a grand command. You say, what is that? A grand command it is my term. It's not Bible term, okay? So if you don't know that, it's okay. You haven't missed anything. This is just my term for a command that encompasses other commands. Okay, that's so to me, that's what a grand command is. If this isn't helpful to you, you can tune out for the next minute or two, okay? Okay, so a grand command. So here's an example of a grand command. Mark 12, 30, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your strength, with all your soul, right? The second great command is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says there is no other commandment greater than these. Those are two grand commands, right? The grand command, love God, love everybody else. If you did that, you, you would fulfill the whole rest of the law, right? Those are grand commands. Um, and, and these grand commands aren't more important than other commands. It's just that the other commands kind of help you along to obey that or, or to get you to that grand command. Another one is 1 Corinthians 10, 31. Whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. Let's see, how much does that encompass? Oh, all, right? Everything that I do needs to be for God's glory. So that's another one of those grand commands. Another grand command is the frequently repeated command that we see in these verses to be holy. Along with all of its synonyms, growing to be more like Christ, growing in godliness and sanctification and holiness and be holy, all of those, those synonyms, those are grand commands. Because other commands fit under that heading of be holy, what it means to be holy. Okay, so if that's helpful to you, praise God. If it's not, just forget all about that. But if you were ignoring everything, tune back in now, okay? So, what I want to do now is just give us a quick, big-picture look at what we've covered in 1 Peter, what we're going to look at this morning, and then what the rest of 1 Peter looks like under this grand command of be holy. Because what we're doing here in verse 13 is we've reached a turning point in the letter. Well, you say, how, do you, how do you know we've reached a turning point? Well, the first word there is the word, therefore. And whenever you see the word therefore, you need to find out what it's there for, right? <laughs> so what is the therefore therefore? It's there for building on what he just said. And so what he did in verses 1 through 12 is he laid a foundation that we've studied over the past few weeks, and then he transitions into the grand command and then fleshes out the grand command in the rest of the letter. The rest of the letter is just filling it all out. So for just a minute, here's the sense of what we've covered, what we're going to cover, and what we're going to be covering in the coming weeks, Lord willing. The sense of chapter 1 to this point is because you don't belong here as an elect exile, because God has caused you to be born again, so you praise Him, because you rejoice in that truth, that relationship with Jesus, due to the unsurpassed worth of this salvation that He's worked in you, therefore set your hope fully on God's coming grace. You put your faith in what He said He's done and is doing. You put your hope on what He's going to do. All of that consumes your heart and your mind. Because it consumes your heart and mind, it compels you to act on it. This is what we're going to be covering this morning by rejecting conformity to the world and your own former ways. Continuing in the chapter, be holy 
what that looks like is live in the fear of God, love one another, and that's what the rest of the letter says as well. Because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, live it out. No matter what she says or he does, you live it out. You believe it, you live it in your mind and in the rest of your life. The rest of the letter shows what it means. Be holy within the people of God, chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. The rest of chapter 2 is be holy outside the people of God, especially before earthly authority in in the government or at work or when you're suffering. In chapter 3, be holy in your marriage in verses 1 through 7. Be holy in obeying the Lord and following Jesus' example all the way through chapter 3 into the beginning of chapter 4. In the rest of chapter 4, be holy in service and suffering because the end is coming. Sounds familiar, right? Chapter 5, be holy in the church. Every bit of it is directly connected to God's work of saving you and what our responsibility is now that He's saved us to be holy, and it's all because of the gospel. So the grand command based on God's work to save you is be holy, right? But that's just one command, and that's the second command. Like I said, there's a a first command that's going to actually enable us to, to obey the second command and to help us for that. So watch the progression for how to be prepared in these two commands in these verses. Prepared for what? Prepared for the end, right? And if we're prepared for the end, if we're prepared for when Jesus returns, we're going to be prepared for anything else that happens in life. So number one, set your biblical hope fully on God's Word. That's the first command in verse 13 in our verses this morning. Set your biblical hope fully on God's Word. Now, we need to talk about why we said the word biblical hope. We've already talked one way about how biblical hope differs from worldly hope, right? We've talked about that maybe a couple of times, but there's another way that it differs. And the first way that we have talked about is that worldly hope carries no certainty, right? Worldly hope is, I hope somebody remembers that it's Mother's Day. I hope that my children have done something, right? I hope whatever. There's no certainty, but biblical hope is absolutely certain. There's no question that it will happen. It's just a matter of when, right? There's actually, there's a strong connection between faith and hope. Again, like I started to say a few minutes ago, faith is total trust and confidence in God for what He has said He has done and is doing. Hope is the same thing just in the future, what God has said He will do. But our faith and our hope are both in God. We read that this morning in verse 21. David says in Psalm 62, 5, For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence, for my hope is from Him. Hope actually comes from God, just like faith does. Faith comes from God. Hope comes from God. Romans 15, 13, Paul calls God the God of hope. And that makes sense to us because as we've learned the last few weeks, there's nothing here that's lasting, nothing here that's eternal that can give us hope, that can give us faith, that can give us real lasting joy or happiness, right? That comes from someone who's outside of this temporal world. That all comes from God. So just as faith comes from God, hope comes from God. So that's one way, right, that biblical hope differs from the world. There's absolute certainty in it. But there's another way that they're different. And this may escape us. This, we may not have noticed this before. Biblical hope not only is not uncertain, but it causes us to act on it. See, worldly hope sits back and says, I hope, I hope, I hope, I hope, right? That's all I can do. I, I've done all I can do. There's nothing else that I can do. Um, now I just have to sit back 
and I just wait. But biblical hope doesn't sit back and wait. Biblical hope pursues and continues and strives and works. Rather than sitting back, we actively move on it and continue to move on it. It influences our daily behavior. And it does more than just influence it. It pushes, it motivates us. When we're hoping for the Lord's return, we're not sitting back and doing nothing. It pushes us forward. It compels us because where our hope is, that's where our thoughts and our energies are, and that's what we act on. So the realm of this command to hope is in our mind. It starts there. So it doesn't, it doesn't start with our heart or our feelings. It, it doesn't start with our behavior. It penetrates our heart, and it manifests itself in our behavior, but it starts with a changed way of thinking, our thought life. Biblical hope is characterized by mental alertness and by readiness for action, and it requires determination. And that's why it's commanded for us to do it. It doesn't just happen, right? It says, set your hope. So hope Biblical hope is not just encouraging, it is encouraging to us, but it's not only encouraging, it's overwhelming in, in changing our life. It, it makes real changes in rearranging our life. Set your hope on the grace of the Lord. How? How do we do that? When we have time? Is that when God says to do this? Or when we're at church on Sundays? You say, what if I'm a pessimist? You know, I, I, don't, I don't have a lot of hope in a lot of things. If you have hope in nothing else, you always have hope here. You say, well, what if I'm an optimist? I mean, I hope in everything, right? I just have, I have hope everywhere. That's not quite right either. See, we're not commanded to set our hope on everything else, on anything and everything else that comes along. Our hope, we are commanded to place our hope in God. And so these, again, these are not suggestions. These are commands. The word here in the ESV for, for fully, he says, set your hope fully, it means perfectly means always, predominantly, singularly, wholly, <laughs> all the time. Now, it's not really possible for us to be thinking one thing all the time and still do our work, but it should consume our thoughts. The grace of God that's coming should consume our thoughts. Do you remember your first car? My first car, oh my goodness, it was a hand-me-down car. I paid $50 a month for 10 months for it. <laughs> it was $500, oh, it had been in a couple of accidents. Um, it was kind of somewhat fixed up enough for me to drive it at least. I don't know if it had been that safe, but uh, I, I think I've told you about it before. It would stall at stop signs or, or at traffic lights. You'd get to the stop, and then you'd have to put it in neutral, keep one foot on the brake, and then just rev the engine to keep it running because it would just, it would just die. Uh, at some point, like with every vehicle, the, uh, the battery had died, and for some reason, I, you know, when you're young, you do things you don't understand later. I drove around with the old battery in the back seat for a while before I returned it to get my core charge, and somehow some of the acid had leaked out of the battery and onto the seat <laughs> and eaten a couple of holes into the seat of the back seat. I, I, I don't know. Like I said, I was young. <laughs> um, it had no air conditioning. This was Phoenix, right? So the, the best air conditioning I had was to crank the windows down and drive fast enough to get some kind of air. So that was my first car. But when I got that car, that was my first car, right? That was the thing. That is, my thoughts were consumed with the car. Where can I go? Where do I need to go? Where do I want to go? I can go wherever I want now, right? I have a car. Does anybody need anything from the grocery store, right? Do you remember that when you've got your first car? I know there's one down the street. I'm going to go to the one on the other side of town because <laughs> I could drive there now. I bought keychains 
so that I wouldn't lose my keys. I took my keys out and played with them because I had keys to play with. Keys to a car, right? <laughs> you know, um, when it was broken, which wasn't all that uncommon, um, I, all of my time and money and energy went into fixing the car, get it working again, right? Everything I had was always poured into that car. Um, my thinking, my actions, my time and money. But see, that's what biblical hope does to us. Or that's what it should do for us. It should overwhelm our thinking. It consumes our thinking because of what God's grace has done in us and what he's going to do when Jesus returns. How much effort are we giving toward this? How much, how much of ourselves are we pouring into this hope of Jesus' return and God's grace when Jesus returns? You know, we pour into work and into good things, good things that are okay, but how much do we pour ourselves into the best things? How much for what God has told us to pour ourselves into? I've given you a definition of hope, a biblical definition of hope, and this is just my definition. If you don't like it, scratch it out and come with your own. But <laughs> this one, I think, accurately helps us understand what, what Peter's talking about, what the Bible talks about when, when the Bible says hope in God. Hope is absolute trust in the good and powerful God to fulfill His Word in the future that prompts action now. So it's faith in God, it's still faith, and it's all absolute trust and confidence in God to fulfill His Word for what He says He's going to do in the future, and it causes me to act on it now. Now that we've seen that, there are two truths we need to understand about biblical hope from verse 13. A, in your notes, biblical hope requires your mind to be prepared and controlled. Prepared and controlled. How do we prepare our minds for hope? It needs to be prepared. It needs to be controlled. Prepare, preparing your mind here, literally, in the, in the original, is girding up the loins of your mind. And for us, we're like, what does that mean, right? <laughs> That's difficult for us to understand. So the, so the translators have interpreted a little bit for us in the English. They've interpreted a little bit for us. It comes from this time when men wore robes instead of designer skinny jeans. What? Oh, real men still don't wear skinny jeans? Okay. Oh, I'm just kidding. <laughs> you can wear those if you want. Okay, but robes. Men wore robes. It, robes were helpful because it kept the sun off. You wouldn't burn your skin, and then it would keep the breeze flowing through, and it maintains the modesty of the culture, right? So they, they would wear robes. The problem is you can't work when you have robes on. So, you know, they get in the way. You, you pull them up and you tuck them into your belt. You kind of make these really bulky, ugly shorts out of the robe. But what you would do is you get the pieces out of the way that would distract you and restrain you and would flow all over the place. You move them out of the way to get ready for work. The modern equivalent is take your jacket off, roll your sleeves up, and get to work, right? That's the idea. And that's what Peter gives us for our mind rather than our clothes, Get all of the useless thoughts out of the way that would distract you or restrain you from thinking rightly. Gather them up, push them out of the way. Your hope is a thought activity in your mind, so you need to think rightly. So to allow yourself to think rightly, push all of those extra things out of the way. Gather up the loins of your mind. This is get prepared in your mind for the labor involved in thinking correctly. Then you'll be ready to think. The other word here for prepared, controlled, it's sober-minded, and it literally means sober as in not drunk, but it means more than just not drunk. When you're inebriated, you're not thinking clearly, you're not thinking rightly. But see, that also goes for the fleeting and constantly changing thoughts and ideas that are brought into our mind 
by anything other than the Word of God. It means controlling the thoughts of your mind so that there's no confusion about where your thoughts are as you find where your hope lies. There's no confusion. There's no rashness, right? I mean, if we look at the world around us, it's given to excess. It's given to indiscretion, to carnality, to faddishness, as one commentary put it. I mean, whatever comes along, whatever feels good, right? Whatever seems right. But our mind is to be controlled, well-composed, tough-minded, ready for work. Now, what does that look like for us? You know, we talk about this, we talk about the battle for our mind and, and the battle for our thoughts and, and our thought life, but here's what it really looks like, because it doesn't feel like a battle. It's not going to feel like a war going on in your mind. It looks like getting home after work, after a long day at work, and all of the kids need your attention, dinner needs to be made, and then you think, you know, I haven't read my Bible in a few days, or, you know, I haven't prayed in a few days. I haven't done anything with the Lord in days. I'll get to it. I'm just really tired. I need a break, right? I need a break. So what do you do? What do so many people do when we need a break? You turn on the TV, right? We'll get to Facebook in a minute. TV, <laughs> TV brothers and sisters, is not neutral. It's not a neutral media form. Movies are not neutral. All of the media that is from the world is of the world, and it's pushing into your mind thoughts, ideas, and philosophies from the world. So instead of, I'm getting home and I need a break, I'm going to consume the Word of God, now instead of the Word, I'm getting the world pushed into my mind as I'm relaxed, as I'm just taking a break. And I'm taking this break, I'm unwinding, but my mind is being lulled into the thoughts of the world. Again, rather than the word, you're getting the world in your mind. Do you ever wonder why you don't have much hope? Your, your mind is being made to think the thoughts of the world. It's, it's not prepared, it's not controlled by verses 1 through 12 of 1 Peter that we've looked at. Instead, it's controlled by whatever is on the TV or whatever is on in the movies. And this is the content of where our hope comes from, God's revelation of Himself to us. So you say, well, yeah, I don't watch TV, I, I read books, I listen to music, you know, it's the same thing. I, Facebook, social media, you know, I listen to that, I, I read that, I, I do those other things, but we're constantly bombarded with the thoughts of the world. And then when we wonder why we don't have any hope, <laughs> we can trace it back to this. It doesn't feel like a battle. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't feel like there's a war going on. It doesn't even bad to us. But this is the battle. This is why it's so dangerous, because it doesn't feel like that. It removes our hope of the gospel and of the future. It destroys our thinking. It replaces the Word with the world. The world owns the entertainment you enjoy. The world controls your mind in entertainment, in news, in education, in social media, and I'm not talking conspiracy theories here, right? I'm not talking about, you know, let's just get crazy and, and, and talk about anything like that. Just this question. Ask yourself this question. How much of whatever I'm doing prepares my mind for action and sobers my mind so that I can set my hope fully on the grace that is to be revealed when Jesus Christ comes? How much of what I'm doing actually fixes my thinking so that I can hope in Christ's return? You take every thought captive, 2 Corinthians 10 says, right? You take every thought, every thought that you think, or every thought that you think you think, <laughs> it, you think that it comes from you, you don't trust it. 
right away. You don't trust your own mind, your own thoughts, your own feelings right away. You, take, you hold it captive to obey Christ. Why? Because in that passage, in that verse, because you're destroying the arguments and every lofty opinion that comes against the knowledge of God. There are thoughts that you think, feelings that you feel that go against what God has said and what God wants. There are thoughts that come in from your enemy who's whispering into your mind, thoughts that you need to be thinking. And too often we buy into them. Too often our guard is down. We're not, we're not taking these thoughts captive. Is it preparing my mind and controlling my mind with the truth of God's grace? Is it improving my hope in God's grace through the revelation of Jesus? Or is it causing me to take my eyes off of the Lord and place them onto this world and get worried and fearful and anxious? That's what so much of the thoughts of the world cause us to do, right? I'm anxious. Now I'm worried. Now I need to get more of it because I need to find out what's going to happen. I need to find out how to help. I need to find out what to do. Now, this takes a lot of work to, to, to have this battle in our mind, to be our, having our minds prepared and controlled. And we're never going to be perfect at it, but we can begin to have much more hope, much more joy and faith when we start doing this, when we start taking those thoughts captive. If a thought comes in that doesn't come from the Lord, it doesn't increase your, your hope in the Lord and His return, it doesn't increase your faith in the gospel, toss it out. Get rid of it. But biblical hope doesn't just require the preparation and the control of our mind. Be in your notes. Biblical hope then leads to action. It leads to action. Look at verse 13. Preparing your minds for action. Now, again, that's a bit of an interpretation. But that's the sense of girding up the loins of your mind. Get ready for the work. Get ready for the action. This is is an active involvement and requires your involvement. After you've prepared your mind in these two ways, now set your hope fully on God's grace that will be completed when Jesus returns. Fully means completely, again, perfectly. No substitutes, no partiality. It's not a halfway thing. This is active work from within. It's intentional, it's purposeful, and it's singular. We've already discovered in our lives enough times that if we set our hope fully on the world, We won't have hope. There's not going to be a lot of hope. If you set your hope fully on yourself, you're going to be disappointed. But even if you set your hope fully on God and think about His justice, set your hope fully on God's justice, wow, that's a terrible place to be because God's justice is, I have sinned and I deserve His punishment forever, right? So Peter doesn't tell us that. He says, set your hope fully on God's grace, the grace that He's given you and that is coming when Jesus returns. Set your mind fully on that. But your natural mind, your flesh, wants to tug you back into the world. The world and its voices, its thoughts, its opinions, listen, those are appealing to your flesh. It's comfortable. They they pull you and tug at you, and they want you to become like them, and your flesh wants to become just like the world. That's what our flesh wants. It wants to be just like the world. But you, believer, have been given a new mind and a new way of thinking when you're born again, when you're regenerated. And we've got to learn to think with our new mind rather than our old mind and our flesh. Ephesians 4 says that the world is darkened. Where are they darkened? In verse 18, it's in their understanding. They are alienated from the life of God because of what? Because of the ignorance that is in them. 
due to their hardness of heart. So their, their heart is hard and their mind is empty of the things of God, the gospel of God. But what about us? Paul says in that same section, in verse 20 of that same verse, but that is not the way that you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about Him and were taught in Him as the truth is in Jesus. See, our level of hope is dependent on the level of our intentional work to focus on God's Word, to prepare and control our mind to be ready for this action of hoping. What was that? (laughs) Our mind has changed. We have a new way of thinking, and our mind has to be influenced. It's going to be influenced by something. It's whether it's going to be the world or the Word. Now, I don't want us to get confused and think, you know, all of this is up to us. You know, i got to figure this all out myself. The force here in 1 Peter uh, of the revelation of Jesus Christ, it's the decisive sovereign action of God to bring it about and complete it. Okay, God's going to do that. And it's going to be His grace that completes our salvation for us in the end. And, And He is who our hope is in. But the level of hope that we have is dependent on our level of effort to see our hope fully and completely on Him, to set it fully on Him because of what He's revealed in His Word. If you're not feeling hope, if you're not realizing hope, it may be because there's not a lot of word influencing and controlling and preparing our mind for that hope. So what kind of outward action reveals itself when our mind is changed in this way? What what does it look like when we're hoping in God's grace in the future? What does it look like now? Well, that's the grand command that we talked about. That's number two in our notes, and it's in verses 14 through 16. The command is, you've probably already got it filled in, be holy, right? That's what it looks like. When our mind is changed, when it's prepared and controlled, when our hope is fully on God, and when we're set forth in action in our mind and in our, in our behavior, in our words, it's holiness. That's the command in these verses. It all points back to that command. As we said, there are a lot of synonyms to this in the Scriptures. Grow in Christ-likeness, grow in godliness, and sanctification and holiness. And that's what the rest of the letter is going to tell us, how to do it, what it looks like. But for now, as Peter introduces it, he gives us three supports for the command to holiness. What is this based on, Peter? What gives you the right to command us to be holy? Peter, you're not perfect yet. He is now because he's with the Lord in glory, right? But he wasn't at the time. What is the support? How do we know that this is real? Well, there are three supports in verses 14 through 16. A, in your notes, holiness is based on your relationship with God. Verse 14, your relationship with God. Peter says, as obedient children. The original is, as children of obedience. That means children who are known for their obedience, It's a characteristic of God's children. It's not something that comes later. He says, as believers, you are children of obedience. That's how he addresses them. The opposite of that is Ephesians 2.2, children of disobedience. That's what we were before we knew the Lord. So it's, it's the picture, you know, you, you think of the kid in, in, in the store, and you're walking around the store, and the parent is, little Johnny, little Johnny, come here. And he just turns around and sticks his tongue out and keeps running, right? <laughs> That's not us. I remember a, a conversation that one of our daughters had with a lady at church one time, and the lady was talking to her, and, and she was really supportive, really helpful, really loving of our daughter, and we really appreciated all that she did. But she was talking with our daughter one time about just life in our family and, and obeying parents, and, and uh, my daughter was, yep, yep, I listen, yep, I do what I tell them to do. And so the lady asked our daughter, 
well, what happens when you disobey? And our daughter kind of got this puzzled look on her face. What do you, well, I don't know, what do you mean? The lady was like, when you don't listen, when you stop listening to your, to your mom, to your dad, what, what then? I, I don't know, what do you mean? <laughs> she, couldn't, she, didn't comp- she couldn't comprehend. What, what do you mean, not listen to my parents? I don't know what that means. <laughs> that's, that's the idea here. You, you are children of obedience to the Lord. We, we can't comprehend what it means not to obey the Lord, right? The alternative here is, is in, in verse Peter in, this, in these verses is what we used to be, following the schema, the pattern, that's what conformed means, of what we used to be. We get the word schematic from this. The world is constantly trying to crank out more in the pattern of itself, the schema of itself. Our enemy working in the world is appealing to our flesh, and he has a goal, a very specific goal to make us just like the rest of the world, conformed to that image. And again, that would be very comfortable to us. That would come very easy. You know, to do that, you don't have to do anything. You don't have to try very hard to be just like the world. But God's plan is the opposite of that, right? Not to conform us to the world, but for us to live out as children of obedience, a life of obedience to the Lord. If you are to cooperate with the plan of the world, you don't have to do anything again, right? Just keep doing the same things. But if you're going to cooperate with God's plan, it's a plan of being obedient as a one who is holy. This is what it looks like to be holy. Whose plan will you cooperate with? Because here's how closely the plan of the world appeals to us. Peter contrasts holiness with the passions of your former ignorance. Our passions, which aren't necessarily a bad thing in and of themselves, what we really want, the true desires of our heart that were part of us, we were ruled by them, were controlled by ignorance. The plans that were not just close to us, they were part of us, were were controlled by ignorance. Our ignorant passions of our former life. Now, ignorance of what? Well, of God, His gospel, His plan and purpose for our life of holiness. Ignorance of God's holy standard that you cannot live up to. That God is completely perfect and holy and, and all of us have sinned and we deserve His wrath forever. We were ignorant of that and that's how we lived. Sinning and continuing in sin and building up, storing up wrath. Verse 3, look at verse 3, but God, according to His great mercy, <laughs> according to God's great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. He saved us anyway in the gospel. All of the other truth that we've studied over the past few weeks, the gospel changed everything about us. It made us new creatures. We have become born again in Christ because of God's great mercy. Before that, Ephesians 2 says, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We once walked according to the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, where? Among the sons of disobedience. That's how we lived. That's how we walked, in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind. And and Paul says, we were by nature children of wrath, just like the rest of mankind. That was our nature. That's how how close it was. (laughs) Our nature was to be like the world, to be against God. That was us. But that's now what we reject. 
that's now part of what we reject. We, we're not conformed to that anymore because our nature has been changed because of our relationship with God. He's made us His children. We're now His sons and daughters. 2 Corinthians 5.17, we are a new creation. The old has passed away. So we are not now what we once were. Therefore, we do not think like we once did. We think differently. We don't live like we did in willful ignorance of God. He's, he's teaching us, he's, and we're learning from Him. We're, we're becoming more like Him. We're not fulfilling the passions of the flesh contrary to God's will. We're growing in holiness. But it's because of our relationship with Him as His children. Next, verses, in verse 15b, the next support for this command is that holiness is based on God's call to holiness. God's call to holiness, verse 15. As He who called you is holy because he's holy, then you also be holy. There's the command, be holy in all your conduct. How is God holy? Well, he's holy in every way, all of the time, right? Holiness means distinct, different, other than us. Even though we're made in his image, he's without sin, he's above us and different from us in every way, better in every way. All of his character and attributes and works, there's nothing that God does that isn't holy. There's nothing that God isn't other than holy. So rather than living like we once did, now as children of obedience, we live in our conduct as holy to God because that's what He has called us to. That's what He's called us to. His design from the beginning was to, for us to be holy. His, His calling to us in salvation is a call to holiness. Now, that may surprise some of us. Some of us have heard, you know, when God calls me and I'm saved, then I've been called to wealth. I, you know, I'm, I'm looking forward to riches. I'm looking forward to comfort and to ease, and to what I'm looking for, everything that I want, right? I've got a big genie in the sky. That's what I've been saved to. (laughs) But He has called us. God's purpose, His goal, His plan for our life is holiness, not easiness. It's holiness, not busyness. Holiness, not silliness. Holiness, not coziness, or pleasantness, or enjoyableness, or pleasurableness, or any of those nesses, right? (laughs) It's holiness. That's His call to us. That was His call to us in our salvation. That's His call to us now. How many Christians live this way? In the second century, Justin Martyr was defending the Christian faith to the emperor, Antoninus Pius, and he was giving the truth claims for Christianity. He was giving the absolute truth. These are the facts. This is what happens. This is creation. This is the Word. This is what's going on. But one of his most convincing arguments to the emperor was, look at the lives of Christians. Look how pure they are. There has to be something to this gospel. There has to be different because look how their lives are different. Could could anybody use that argument today for Christians? That's what God has called us to, a life of purity. Not because we're trying to earn, again, not because we're trying to earn from God our salvation, but because He's already given it to us. Now, we understand that holiness is not relative, right? To, To be holy means to be absolutely holy without having to say absolutely. Holy means to be absolute and and no partial holiness, right? There's no such thing as partially holy. God is holy always and in every way. Be holy as I am holy. How can we do that? He's called us to holiness positionally before God. In Jesus Christ, He has made us holy already, positionally before Him. Jesus has done it all. There is no further work. It is finished, he said. Amen? 
but practically in our everyday life. Positionally, we're holy. Practically, we're not there yet, right? He's working to conform us more into the holiness as children of obedience because of our relationship with Him. He called us once and for all, positionally holy. Practically, He is calling us every day into that holiness. What does He use? Where is, where is He working in that? It's in our mind. It starts in our mind, our way of thinking. Our minds need to change, our way of thinking. That's why we said that the first command of setting our hope on God's grace, following that command enables the second. We don't start trying to give ourselves a bunch of rules, a list of rules to follow. I've got to be holy, so I've got to stop doing this. I've got to start doing that. And, you know, I've got to lose track because there's so many rules and commands, right? Change your way of thinking. Set your hope first on God's grace. And as we do that, as we become more consumed with God's Word, our lives begin to change. So we should never be satisfied that we've ever reached that goal of holiness until we've gone to be with Him. This isn't just around church people or just when other people are watching, but when we're on our own, by ourselves, in the, our room by ourselves, in the living room when no one else is home. Nobody else is going to measure us against this standard of holiness. God will. So we can't do it on our own. We can't make ourselves holy. God is working to bring us there. He's working to bring into reality what is already true before Him in Christ. So this command to holiness is based on our relationship to God, and it's based on His call for us. Finally, see, we'll end with this. Holiness is based on His Word. Verse 16, where's the authority for all this? Because Peter said so. Is that what it says? <laughs> because the pastor told us we're supposed to be. No. It is written. Since it is written, be holy. That means exist as holy because I exist as holy. It comes from God's Word. It's the authority of God, His revelation of Himself to us. It's a quote from Leviticus 11.44 and 19.2 and many, many, many other places. That's why we take this commandment so seriously, because God said it. It is written. It stands revealed in His Word. It's been commanded. It's written. It's recorded. It's documented. It's preserved. It's given to us. And we understand it. He didn't hide it from us, didn't put it in a riddle. You know, oh, got to find out what God's will is. Not quite sure. <laughs> He's told us. So live the truth. We have no excuse for not knowing. We, we live the truth. The truth is the holy God has made you holy before Him already. Now live that way in your conduct, in your, in your speech, in your thinking, in your actions and reactions. You know, it's not go live in a monastery somewhere, but as you live your life, your life is now lived differently. It starts in your thinking. Don't, there's one, one trap that we fall into, the trap of comparing ourselves to others, right? Well, I'm holier than that guy. I've got to be doing okay, right? <laughs> Everyone is doing this or that. Here, I found a quote from R.C. Sproul, and I love this quote. Here's what he says, quote, the oldest argument in the world for defending behavior is that everybody else is doing it. But God does not care what everybody else is doing. God knows what everybody else is doing. He is concerned about what we are doing, and He tells us not to be conformed to those patterns, end quote. <laughs> I love that. He tells us what He wants from us. It's in His Word. And so this command is based in the Word of God. 
It's based on these three structures, these supports. Now listen, we need to be holy. That's the command, right? Be holy. So what you need to do right now is knock down your pride and repent of the thought of thinking, okay, I'm going to do that because you can't. You cannot just be holy. You cannot make yourself holy. As we study His Word, as we learn and as we grow and our minds are changed, the Spirit uses the Word within us to change us from within, and He does all the work in us. He uses our efforts. He uses our energy. He uses all of the things that we want to do, all of our deep desires and passions for Him, but He gets all the credit. That's how we become spiritual preppers. That's what He wants from us. The end is coming, so be prepared. Our application Prepare for Christ's return in your mind through biblical hope. We need to be preparing all the time. We need to be prepared right now. Jesus says, stay awake, be ready, watch. He says it over and over. Prepare for Christ's return in your mind through biblical hope, and then live out that hope in holiness. Live it out. Live out the truth. If you love this world more than you love the Lord, more than you love His Word and His appearing, then you're going to dismiss these commands. You're going to ignore all of this and say, forget all of it. You're not going to set your hope on God's grace that's coming at Jesus' revelation. Your mind is not going to be ready. It's not going to be prepared. It's going to be controlled by whatever comes along, whatever comes into your ears and whatever comes in through your eyes. You're not going to be growing in holiness. I'm just, ah, it's not that important to me. If I love myself more than the Lord, if I love the world more than the Lord, But if we love the Lord, we will be changed in this way because we want to obey Him, because He's already saved us, because He's made us holy positionally. And so practically, we want to glorify Him in all that we do with that grand command by growing in holiness. Father, we praise You and thank You that Christ Jesus is holy. Lord, that He lived a holy life. It was complete and absolute. Lord, He never sinned, not in His mind, His mind was controlled and prepared all the time. He was hopeful in you. He had complete faith in you. Lord, he never said or did anything that was an offense against you. God, he never one time sinned. God, he didn't do that to show us how to do it because we can't. He did it for us because we can't. Lord, he died to pay the penalty because we can't. But then, Lord, he rose from the dead. Father, we praise you. We exalt Jesus Christ because of his work that is enough. The work is finished. God, we now stand before you as holy. Father, we pray, we ask earnestly that you would change our minds, our thinking, our feelings, our actions, our words, everything about us to be more conformed to Jesus. Lord, that we would not be like the world, that we would not be conformed to this world or to our former ways before we knew you and before you knew us as your children. God, I pray that you would give us a greater love for you, that we would glorify you in all that we do, that we would be growing more holy every day. We praise you, God. We thank you already for what you have done, what you are doing. God, we look forward to Christ's return. We lift him up. We praise him. And we love those around us as he told us to. God, we pray all of this and ask all of this in the precious and holy name of your only son, Jesus. Amen.